So um, I'd like to introduce Dr. Weiss, Rabbi Andrea L. Weiss, and um, she is Associate Professor of Bible in New York at Hebrew Union College, and she is the editor of a really interesting book called The Torah, A Woman's Commentary, which is a version of the Bible from a woman's perspective, focusing on language um, that does connect to women. So it's a way of seeing the Bible that's, that's a little bit out of the ordinary. Um, okay, this book won the Jewish Book Council 2008 Everett Family Foundation Jewish Book of the Year Award. And Dr. Weiss lives in Philadelphia with her family and as uh, I think those of the faculty who attended the lunch workshop can attest, she is an excellent speaker. And in fact, at the lunch workshop, Dr. Weiss encouraged us to look in a new way at the Bible, at the Hebrew Bible, and recognize that, that despite sometimes conventional thinking that the, the God of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, is that patriarchal male God, Dr. Weiss surprised us by showing us how much feminine language is used to describe the, the God of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. So I suspect that she will also instruct and surprise us tonight as well. And just a little aside for those of you who are ACS students. So for some of you, this may be the first academic lecture of your careers. And a few pointers on how to get the most out of this lecture. Think of this, too, as a conversation. We talk about traditions and conversation a lot in ACS. So don't think of yourself sitting there quietly, passively, while Dr. Weiss is talking. Think of your responses to Dr. Weiss. I'm going to count on you to respond. I'm going to ask you questions. So. Okay. And also, even if you don't get asked questions, make a note of your responses. Anything that interests you, any questions you have, because there will be a question and answer period at the end. So see yourself as responding to Dr. Weiss. If something surprises you, make a note of it. This way, you will be much more engaged, you will get much more out of this experience, and you'll have a lot more to say to Dr. Weiss when she calls on you. <laughs> so, so thank you, thank and you. I hope you all enjoy this speech. Before we, get start, before we get started, there are seats up in the front. If those of you who are in the back want to venture uh, to the front, you can uh, <laughs> get the way standing versus sitting in the front row. But there, we do have seats here. And everyone should have, um, there are three pages of the handout uh, if everyone, uh, that everyone should have. If not, the three pages. Um, does someone have the extras? That So as, I'll, I'll read anything that's on the hand, well, or if you're sitting near someone, we'll see if we can. The main one that I'd like to make sure people have is the two-sided handout with the charts. I don't know if there are extras of those, who was passing those out. Okay, so if you don't have, this is the uh, handout that we'll especially need. If, if anyone doesn't have this uh, handout with the three columns, please raise your hand and we'll get that to you. Okay. So we'll get, go ahead and get started as, as uh, the last of the handouts are going around. So there, there are certain aspects of the Bible that seem so obvious or well known that they probably wouldn't even merit a question on a game show or a, cross, or a crossword puzzle. 
For example, how many commandments are in the so-called Ten Commandments? How many plagues uh, did the Egyptians experience before the Israelites fled from Egypt? Um, however, in both of these cases, as in much of the Bible, things uh, end, turn out to be far more complicated than originally meets the eye. And you can ask me in the question and answer uh, session about these two examples, which we won't go into. But another example of something that t turns out to be more complicated is the story of the Garden, and e the Garden of Eden. The plot of this familiar narrative, which is the second account of creation that we find in the early chapters of the book of Genesis, seems pretty straightforward. God creates Ha'adam, which is the Hebrew word for the man, and notice that we have the definite article, so it's really, in the Hebrew, not Adam with a capital A, but Ha'adam, the man, from the dust of the earth, animated by the divine breath of life. And after pl pl placing this first human being in a luxurious garden, God realizes that the man needs companionship. When none, none of the animals do the trick, God casts a deep sleep over the man, removes one of his ribs, and creates woman. And this is where we will pick up the story as we investigate what transpires in the garden and also what are the ramifications of how we read this text. Our goal is to closely read the biblical text, this, especially this foundational biblical text, and I know a number of you are studying this uh, in class or have already done so today or in the next couple days. Um, and as we do so, we want to engage in the kind of slow reading described by the lay professor of Bible, Tikva Frymer Kensky, in her, her excellent book, Reading the Women of the Bible. She writes, Biblical stories are artfully crafted documents that open up deep levels of meaning in response to careful study. Underneath the simple Sunday school tales taught by faith traditions lie complex, deeply ambiguous narratives that require the reader to take an active part in their exposition. Serious study begins with the effort to remove the traditional interpretations and to read the stories in their richly enigmatic artistry. And that's exactly the type of reading that we'll do as we study Genesis 3. So as she says, um, this kind of reading requires you to take an active part, and I'm going to count on you to be active readers and also active participants in the discussion. So we're going to start with the handout that has the three columns. We're going to use um, actually four columns. We have um, the Hebrew text on the left, and then we have three, three different English translations that we're going to compare a little bit. So let me introduce you to these three translations. The first is the New American Bible from the Catholic Study Bible. It's a Roman Catholic English translation first published in 1970 that aims to render scripture in a modern American idiom. The second is Robert Alter's The Five Books of Moses. Robert Alter is professor of comparative literature at my alma mater, UC Berkeley, University of California at Berkeley. And um, he uh, was motivated to translate uh, the five books of Moses because he was frustrated that in his own teaching of Bible, he never had, he, there was not an existent English translation that he felt really replicated um, the, the Hebrew. Not only in its meaning, which a lot of translations end to, uh, aim to be more idiomatic and to convey what the text means, but they don't give us uh, enough of a sense of 
of um, how the Hebrew oper operates. And to get to the meaning of the Hebrew, you really have to understand it's um, how it works. So word repetition, sort of the, the syntax of the Hebrew. So he aimed, his translation aims to be more literal, and I would also add more literary, to, to, give, um, to give you as an English reader more of a sense of how the Hebrew works. And then the final translation um, is the translation that's used in the Torah Women's Commentary. That's, um, so we'll, and we'll study a bit of it um, afterwards. This is the book that um, I co-edited. And um, when we worked on this book, we inherited this translation. Um, it was a translation that was put together for an, uh, an earlier Torah commentary called the um, Torah, a modern commentary, the revised version that came out in 2006. It's a translation that aims to be what is called gender accurate. That means that the language for God is um, almost entirely gender neutral in the translation, and the language for human beings is sometimes gender specific and sometimes gender neutral depending on the topic. So if you're talking about, um, if you have a Hebrew word um, that, um, av, for example, which can either mean a father or a parent, it might get translated one, as one way in one verse as father and in the next verse as parent depending on the context. So that's a little bit of an introduction and that translation dates to 2006. So that's an introduction to the translations that we're going to use and as you'll see translation is an interpretive art and can affect in certain important ways how you perceive what's going on in a, in a given text. So with that as an introduction now let's um, turn to Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 to 6. And I'll read from the um, New American Bible translation. Um, okay, and hopefully this will be, um, the plot will be somewhat familiar, but this is where we meet the serpent. Uh, now the serpent was the most cunning of all animals that the Lord God had made. The serpent asked the woman, did God really tell you not to eat from any of the trees in the garden? The woman answered the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It is only about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, you shall not eat it or even touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die. No, God knows well that the moment you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like gods who know what is good and what is bad. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eyes and desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. So the first question that we want to ask about this is we have um, both the serpent in verse 1 and the woman. And notice that she's always going to be referred to so far as the woman. She is not given the name Eve until later in the chapter. Um, so. The, the serpent and the woman are having a, sort of a debate about what exactly, about what God said. So the first thing that we want to do is compare, so we've heard the serpent say, isn't this what God said? And the, and the woman says, no, in fact, God said something else. So what we're going to want to do first is to turn the handout, this handout over. And I've given you the section in Genesis 2, 16 to 17, this is where God speaks after having created Adam, the man, and placed him in the garden. God gives him the following instruction. And what I'm going to ask you, we're going to compare what God says in this text to what, first to what the serpent said, 
God says it's a little bit like a game of telephone, and then to what the woman says, and, and compare them and see what, what's going on. Okay, so think about how, so let me, this is what um, the serpent says to the woman. Um, did God really tell you um, not to eat from any of the trees of the garden? Okay, now we want to compare that to what God actually said in the earlier chapter. Um, the Lord God gave man this order. You are free to eat from any of the trees of the garden, except the tree of knowledge of good and bad. From that tree you shall not eat. The moment you eat from it, uh, you are surely doomed to die. So how does what the serpent says, and you mean to kind of flip back and forth, so take a minute to look at, compare that passage, 16 and 17, to what the serpent says in verse 1. And how, how does it differ? any extra handouts, but if you sit next to someone, bless me. Okay, so anyone want to uh, give some thought as to what is different about uh, what God says in chapter 2 versus what the serpent says God said uh, in chapter 3? How do they comp how do those two statements compare? Uh-huh. No, no, or, or I would say it's a rhetorical question, right. Good, good. So did everyone want to add to that? Right, right, cer certainly for, further on. Good, good. So the key thing that we want to see as, 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 you know, the serpent's goal here is to try to convince the woman to eat. And we want to look at what's his, what's his rhetorical strategy. How is he trying to do that? So why do you, so, if, so look at the structure of God. So God, how does God start off in the prohibition in verse 16? What's the first thing God says? Here. What? Yeah, you can, so first thing he, that God gives permission. You can eat anything, but then makes only one exception, but th there's only one thing that you cannot eat. And notice how the serpent flips that, and as was said, the serpent says, and, and presented it as a question here, didn't God say, don't eat anything at all? So why, what do you think is, why would the serpent phrase it that, that way to say, um, you can't eat anything? What's, what's, the, what's the thinking there, if you're trying to convince someone to do something that they're not supposed to do, why might he phrase it that way? Wait, say that again? Okay, so, so, right, so they're kind of creating an equality. What else might be effective about saying, didn't God say you can't eat anything? Uh huh. Okay, so to, to, get her, to get her to kind of clarify it, to kind of, so to, so to draw, maybe to sort of draw her in to the conversation because he's, he's, and he's asking it as a question. So the question, so that's interesting, just phrasing it as a question, he's sort of inviting an answer. So he's, because he's trying to engage her a little bit. So, that, so that's, that's one idea that by phrasing it that way and in a way that maybe is wrong, that is not correct, then he's kind of inviting her to 
participate in the conversation with him. Maybe otherwise she might ignore him. Other thoughts? Good. Good, good, good. So, so that's also part of it. What, what kind of a God is it that would say to you, you can't eat anything? Okay, so, so that, that's the first part. So now she does respond. She, um, so she kind of uh, takes the bait and, and responds. And she and sort of responds right away to say, no, no, no. Um, and let's look at how her response then compares to what um, God actually said. Now, now we should note, though, so she... From this verse, we learn from, from verse um, 2 in chapter 3, we learn that, that, the, that the woman knows what, or what God said. But, but what we, what's the missing link is we have God telling the man what he can and cannot do. We don't have, then, we, we don't know how the woman learns of what she's supposed to do or not do. So the question is, um, when, we, when she is telling us what God said, is she just repeating word for word what the man said? Or did God communicate with her directly? Um, or we, we don't know. So there are various possibilities as to how did she get this, this answer. But just as with the serpent, her response also, or, or her restatement of what God says, doesn't line up. And let's see how she's altering um, what God says. So what she says, God says, again, this is like a game of telephone here, um, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It is only about the fruit in the middle of the garden that God has said, you shall not eat of it or even touch it lest you die. Okay, so now how does that compare? Let's compare that, that uh, comment to again go to the other side of the handout where we again look at what God's original statement you are free to eat from any of the trees of the garden except for the tree of knowledge of good and bad from that tree you shall not eat the moment you eat from it you are surely doomed to die so how does her restatement differ um Okay, right, in the sense of, of lest you die, right, so, so, so um, that's a slight, that's a different nuance, good. Good, good, so she adds a restriction that isn't there, um, so it's not even just eating it, but she's saying you can't even touch it or you're going to die, and what, what else about, anything else that you notice that's different? Mm-hmm. Right, right. So, so, so she says, so she, she tells us just that it's the tree in the middle of the garden and that you can't even touch it. What, what is, what are the, what's significant about those changes? What, what, the, what might those seemingly subtle changes in wording, but what might those re, uh, reflect about sort of how she's processing this prohibition, especially as she's thinking about maybe taking it? Good. said it to her because like God said he created man in his image so he was probably showing more favoritism to Adam and saying this is this is my order to you not like it was up to Adam to tell Eve if Adam didn't tell Eve it was like really not like her fault because God came to Adam and not both of them good so so this as I as I mentioned this is the interesting part of the story is she repeating word for word what Adam told what 
what the man told her and he's the one who didn't remember it, didn't get it right, or did, did, did the man tell her exactly what God told her and, and she is the one who's changing it. So either way, there, there's been some sort of misremembering, but it's, but it's interesting what it, what it reflects about sort of this temptation. Right, but but it, but it's also in the middle. It, it, I mean, the middle signifies importance, but it's like, and not saying that it's the tree of knowledge that never makes it seem like it could be any other tree. Right, and that gets to the earlier point of you know, sort of what kind of God is this? So why why make this if it's not so important? If it's just that it's in the middle, why why this arbitrary prohibition that you can't eat it? Um, Good, good, exactly right. And what's the psychology of saying, I mean, this just happened to me, I have a seven-year-old, and we were going through some things, and he had a piece of paper, and he looked at it, and then he balled it up and said, don't, don't look at this. Well, of course, <laughs> the minute he's at the room, the first thing I want to do, which I have to say I didn't, is to find the paper and look at it. So when someone tells you, you know, you can look at, you can look at any of my stuff, Mom, but don't look at that one piece of paper. There's something that makes that particularly alluring. So you could eat of any tree, but, but not that one in the middle of the garden. It just sort of human nature is to, so even without the serpent, human nature is to want, so there's certain allure in being told the one thing that, that we can't do. Um, so, so let's look at now, um, sort of how do we, how do we um, I can't, so, so the last comment was getting at, the question I want to get at is, is how does, um, what motivates the woman to, to finally take the fruit. So she's focused on, on um, so what does the serpent do to try to convince her? Right. And so, um, right. So, so, so what is that doing then? Why, what, what is that? How might that statement entice her? Um, uh-huh. Good, and, and, and notice what he says here. He says, uh, first of all, what's the first thing he says before he gets to that? He says, uh, the serpent says in verse 4, you certainly will not die. So, so if, if the motivation that's supposed to keep the man and the woman from eating that fruit is that they'll die, the first thing he's saying, you know what? So he's, he's already raised a question we talked about before. What kind of God is this that will say you can't eat from anything? And then, you know, why is it that this, um, so first of all, he's saying, you know what? That God's wrong. You're not going to die. And in fact, the serpent's right. Right? Because what happens? They, they don't die. So the serpent happens to be right on that. And, and what does he imply about the nature of God? And here I think even less subtly than earlier when he says, No, God knows well that the moment you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like gods who know what is good and what is bad. What is he implying about the nature of God there? Um, well, yeah, that there, that there are other, other gods. Okay, good. Okay, good. Other anyone else? Uh, 
Right. So what, what kind of God is this who's, who's kind of playing with you in a, a little bit and, and trying to keep something that's actually going to be good for you? What kind of a God is it? So you can see the rhetorical strategy at work in, uh, in the serpent, and it's pretty convincing. And then if you look in verse 6, we can see what, what finally uh, gets the woman. Um, so she's now, you know, I think the serpent convinces her that God's not going to th follow through on the punishment. And then we see all the alluring qualities. It's good for, for food, pleasing for the eyes, desirable for gaining wisdom. Now, up, note, what kind of fruit is it that they eat that she eventually takes? Okay, good. <laughs> um, and how do you get at a fig? Okay, so right. So notice we have no mention in the text of apples. And I don't have verse 7, but what happens in verse 7? What's the first thing that they do? After both the man and the woman eat the fruit, their, their eyes are opened. Right. So, so we know there were figs in... Uh, in ancient Israel, certainly in this part of the world, there were no apples. And the only fruit mentioned here, the only tree mentioned is fig. So, so, so that is a likely candidate, but we don't have any mention. So I, I, that, that's one place where we sort of have, an, have a general impression that, you know, it's, if you look at any painting, almost every painting that's ever been painted of this scene, you're going to see a big, you know, luscious looking apple. But in fact, you see in the biblical text, doesn't mention the fruit, and if anything, it's more likely um, like Leah Fig here. Um, so, um, so now I want to look at, um, so we've seen what's tempted her, and we can see then um, both, it was good for food, pleasing to the eyes, but this desirable for gaining wisdom. So this seems to be ultimately the thing that's alluring. And I know now many of you have read um, Gilgamesh, and how then does this story, what is it, what's the quest in Gilgamesh? Immortality, Immortality right? That, that's what, so there seems to be um, an attempt to counter that. Here, um, it's the de desire for knowledge, not immortality, that's distinguishing um, this early, this tradition from other ancient traditions where immortality, that's what's not of interest. What seems to be the final thing that, that convinces the woman to eat the fruit is this sense of wanting knowledge. So that's an important thing to note, and there seems to be a little bit of a polemic against other uh, early creation stories that were um, existing at that time. But now I want to look at the last verse and compare these three translations and talk about what's significant in that. Okay, so the translation that we read so we see that this is, we're on the, the first page of the handout again. I'm back in uh, verse 6, the underlined section. So in the translation we read, it says, And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And that's fairly similar to um, the translation, the Torah, women's commentary. And then she gave some to her man who was with her, and he ate. Um, you see the difference up here that's keeping a little closer to the Hebrew ish man, whereas it's uh, husband, but um, um, but let's compare that to the two translations in the middle of the column. So the Robert Alter translation says, "And she also gave to her man, and he ate." What is different about? Let's just compare that Alter translation to the New American Bible. What's what's different there? Mm -hmm. Good. Does everyone see that? So, a seemingly simple prepositional phrase, the Hebrew is ima, 
with her. And I've just given you another translation that also does not include it. This is the Jewish Publication Society translation. She also gave some to her husband, but no mention of with her. What's, what's significant? What, what is the difference if you, um, if, you don't trans, if you don't include the prepositional phrase that we have in the Hebrew, the ima with her? What difference of it does it make in our reading of the story that the Hebrew text and those translations that are more faithful to it say that she then gives some to the man who was with her? What's significant about that? Exactly. Exactly. Anyone else want to add anything to that? Yes. It does make her sound a little bit more devious that she went through the trouble of taking the fruit and bringing it to her husband or her man. You know, like again, more responsible. More responsible. Wait, wait. If, 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 it's, if the phrase is there or not there? If, if, uh, if it's not there, if he's not with her, then it's like, you know, she went through the trouble of going to seek him out. Right, so if you read a translation like the altar translation that makes no mention of the man being with her, then you get the sense that it's this conversation between the serpent and the woman, the man's nowhere around, and that then she goes and she takes a bite and then gives it to him. But it's a different picture if, in fact, when we have that, that prepositional phrase and we see that the man was with her all the time. What questions does that raise about, you want to ask about the man's role. Okay. You mean if he, if he was sort of... Okay, good. So sort of that, if that, some of that communication took place then, what other questions would you want to ask about the man? Uh-huh. Yes, yes. Either why didn't he say... Oh, no, God didn't exactly say that when she says, don't even touch it. Oh, no, no, that's not what God said. So why doesn't he say something like that? Or why doesn't, why doesn't he say, no, don't do it, right? So we, anyone else want to add? Any other questions you want to ask about the man here? Um, so, so we see, I mean, that you've got to wonder about him silent. So now you have a very different picture of the story, right? Because you see him passively, silently, standing there, while she's having this exchange and not saying anything. And as, as the comment that was made then, then that changes our, our sense of who is responsible in this story. Let me read, um, I'm going to read a little bit of um, Tamara Skenazi's commentary from the Torah Women's Commentary. We'll look um, more closely um, from this volume in a minute. But, um, and think about the way that, that her commentary on this phrase, the man who was with her, this is not in your handout, how does this differ from the way that you may have in the past viewed this story or been taught this story? So she writes, um, most earlier translations unfortunately omit with her, letting readers assume that the man was ignorant of the exchange and thereby innocent. Genesis, however, portrays both woman and man as culpable. The woman takes, and then she adds, so, so first of all, she's, she's saying that, that once we know that the man's here, he has to take responsibility, that, that she's not the only one who should get the blame for what happened. And then she adds, she's going to give a different spin on it. Um, she says, the woman takes the first step toward what modern interpreters call consciousness raising. If the tree entails knowing all things, then woman is the bringer of civilization, not death. 
So she's actually saying that we ought to thank the woman and see something positive, that, that she actually, in a sense, took a risk and sort of portrayed, she doesn't go this far, but what in a sense she's saying is that, that, that she actually takes this risk and does something bold, and she's, in fact, this, the first one um, to raise consciousness, and in fact, she brings about civilization. So it's a much more positive spin than I think you'd find in the average reading of, of this story. Any questions, comments so far? Mm-hmm. I think the question is how is the relationship between the men and the women, like, who ran the relationship, but also... Well, what impression do you get so far? Yeah, but, but, also, <laughs> but also, who did the man put first? Did he put his, uh, his wife or the woman, or did he put God? Because God gave him an order, and he was with the woman when the serpent was talking to her, he knew exactly what was told to him by God, but I mean, everybody, you know, I know, you know with your wife, like, a woman can play mind tricks on her. So, you know, like, okay, so, so a lot of that, we, we don't know. So this is, this is what gives rise to the commentary, there, and um, especially in the Jewish tradition, there's what's called midrash, which is, um, basically sort of a lot of this in the, I'm going to call the white space between the words, where we want to ask those questions. What was the relationship like between the man and the woman? Well, the nature of biblical narrative, and as we see it here, is that biblical narrative tends to be very terse. We don't have, unlike modern literature, or even ancient, other forms of ancient literature, for example, um, that goes into great detail about how the characters look, what they're thinking, what the dynamic is between them. The, the biblical narrative is not like this at all. So we often have a lot of questions, like what was the relationship like between the man and the woman. We can't answer that from the biblical text. We have to use our imagination, and that's what gives rise to a lot of forms of biblical commentary, but particularly in the Jewish tradition, what's, what's called midrash, where the ancient rabbis would go in and, let's say, make up a story about the relationship and kind of create a dialogue about the relationship between the man and his wife. Because you have to do that imaginatively because this is all we have right here, these words on the text. And, and it doesn't allow us to answer the kind of questions that you asked, or even the kind of questions like, how did the woman know this information? So there's a lot of blank spaces. As a, as a biblical scholar, I want to try to answer those questions from, what the, from the clues in the text and not my imagination. So, but, but in some cases, we reach a dead end, and that's where sort of you can imagine what the relationship was like, but, but we can't answer that definitively. So let's move on to the next part of the story. Um, so, so that's the human action, and now we're going to see the divine reaction. And th this is um, one of the more controversial um, parts of this text, and we'll see how much uh, we can cover in the, in the time that we have. Um, we're skipping a couple of verses in the, in the text. We're, see, we're picking it up at verse 14, um, from where, after we we, um, where we le left off the story. We then have God enters into the picture, asks a couple questions, uh, tries to get the man and the woman to take responsibility for what's happened. They both um, sort of blame each, blame the, the man blames the woman, and in fact blames God. Well, it's because of this woman that, that you gave me. You know, don't blame me. And the woman says, well, it's because of the serpent. So everyone's passing the buck. No one wants to take, when confronted by God, no one wants to take responsibility. Um, but uh, God reacts, and there's then a punishment that's meted out to the serpent, the woman, and the man. And we're going to look closely at the language there and, um, uh, and how, um, how we should read it. So I'll start um, first, again, I'll start with the New American Bible translation. 
Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you shall be banned from all the animals and from all the wild creatures. And notice if you skim over at the other translations, what this translation has as banned is as cursed or curse in, in the other translation. And that's a more faithful translation of the Hebrew arur. Okay, and that's, I'm going to, so watch for that word curse um, that we're going to have again. So, so that's the punishment. And then it goes on for a couple of verses about the serpent, but uh, we're going to skip to here, verse 16 what God says to the woman. And to the woman, God said, I will intensify the pangs of your childbearing. In pain shall you bring forth children, yet your urge shall be for your master. To the man, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree of which I had forbidden you to eat, cursed shall be the ground because of you. In toil shall you eat its yield all the days of your life. And the Hebrew there for cursed is um, uh, is the same root, aror. Okay, so we have. So the first question I want to ask then is, in this passage, is as part of this punishment, who or, or what is cursed and who is not? Okay. Uh-huh. Okay, but so it's, it's the serpent and the soil, but not, this is what I want you to see, not the man or the woman. Okay, so, so the, in the first case in verse 14, say it's the serpent that's cursed um, and the other one here. So, so this is important to see the kind of language that's used or not used. So here we have the word cursed um, for, for, the, um, for the serpent and the soil, but not for the man and the woman. So it's clear here, the story makes it clear that, that um, transgressions, and in this case particularly disobedience, have consequences. But what I want you to see is that, they, that the man and woman are not cursed because of it. Notice that, that they're not, the word sin doesn't appear yet, or doesn't appear here. They're, they're clearly held responsible, but what I, what I want you to see is that they're not, they're not cursed because of what they do. Okay, so that, that's one thing we want to see. And now we've got to kind of puzzle out um, verse 16, what it is that God says to the woman. Um, so um, let's look across, just we're going to look at sort of the, uh, this has been one of the most puzzling uh, verses in the Bible. And this, when we wrote the um, Torah women's commentary, we inherited a translation. And the only place where we insisted that we couldn't live with the, with the translation that, that um, existed was in verse 16. So we changed it when the book came out. And then we're now, uh, we're already on the third printing, and we still weren't happy with it. And we, we changed it a little bit also for, for the third printing, which, which we'll look at. Um, but what I want to look at is, so we have here two Hebrew words, that, which is the underlined phrase that we're going to look at. So the Hebrew here is itzvonech veheronech. Okay, in the New American Bible, it translates it, I will intensify the pangs of your childbearing. Now let's compare this with the next two translations. The altar translation is, I will terribly sharpen your birth pangs. And that same phrase is translated in the third translation as I will greatly increase your toil and your pregnancies. So what's different about those three translations? And we'll talk about sort of what What's driving those differences? So how, how, how do they differ? There, we're focusing again on this underlined phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, in the third 
Good, good. So, th so that's that's good. So, does everyone see that? And the 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 first two they treat they treat it as like as one clause. So, and and the Hebrew there. So, itzvonech uh, has to do with. Um, well, we'll read in the commentary how that gets explained. And then heronech is has to do with pregnancy. And so the the translation, the third translation, is closer to the Hebrew. The Hebrew. If anyone knows um, a little bit about Hebrew, we have one noun, and then we have the conjunction ve, and then another noun. So I will great you, greatly increase your X and your Y. But the history of translation is that conjunction has been lost, and instead of saying I will greatly increase these two things, it's always been treated as, generally been treated as one phrase as their, your pangs or your pain of childbearing. Which gives, what's your impression from that phrase as you read that verse now or as I've read in the past? What, is, what does the punishment seem to be from that translation? Uh-huh. Right, it, se it seems to imply that, 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 um, that pregnancy or, or childbearing here, birth pangs, going through labor will be painful, okay? But now that's different than to say, I will increase your toil and your pregnancy. So let's see a little bit how we get to that translation. So those of you who have um, the other handout, that's a copy of the Torah Women's Commentary. We're going to look at um, part of the comment on page 16. So if you have page 16, you can follow along. And I'm going to read from on the um, right-hand column on page 16, about um, five lines down. Okay, so this, the commentator writes, the Hebrew noun itzavon from etzev is here translated as toil. In ancient, and toil meaning what? What's your, when you hear the word toil, what does that imply to you? Uh, work. work, good, good. Work as opposed to, that's very different than pain. So here it's translated as toil. In ancient uh, Israel, women regularly worked long hours. Remember, this is an agrarian society. Um, uh, in food preparation, in storage, in the manufacture of clothing, in farming, alongside men, and, and more. Uh, for the Torah's original audience, this story would have brought such labors readily to mind. So not labor, meaning labor pangs giving birth, but just hard work. I'm going to increase your toil, the effort, the work that you're going to have to exert just to put food on the table, clothing, care for your animals. You're going to have more, more work. And then um, the commentary adds that the word can also be rendered either as anguish, har or, uh, sorrow, hardship, or anguish, um, which appear elsewhere. It, but then it, she adds, indeed, itzavon does not mean pain anywhere else in the Bible. So that's important to note, so that this word that has been translated as pain, so pain, this, these two phrases, uh, so one, the, the argument is that, that this word itzavon has been mistranslated as pain, that it really refers to toil, and that we're actually two separate things then that are part of this punishment. It's two things that are going to be increased. One, you're going to have to work harder. Your, your labor is going to be increased. And there's support for this this. Um, reading, if you look at verse, go back to the, to the text of chapter 3, look at the punishment for the man. And here, look at it either um, both the New American Bible or the Torah Women's Commentary. Look at the, the punishment of the man. 
only through toil shall you eat of it as long as you live. So the same punishment then, through this word, is given to the man and to the woman, that they're both going to have to work hard. And again, this reflects the reality of life. So for the, going back to the woman then, and if reading it this way, your toil and your pregnancies, it's a two-part punishment. Punishment one is that, just one sec, is that you're going to have to work really hard, and that's consistent from what we know about what life was like in ancient Israel. And the second thing is that you're going to have a lot of pregnancies, which also um, was a reality of life in ancient Israel. Um, and um, archaeologist Carol Myers, in a different part of the commentary, um, who um, argues that this reading of your toil and your pregnancies reflects the reality of life in ancient Israel. She writes, the, high land, the highlands of the land of Israel were not very fertile or well watered. Therefore, the hard work of both women and men was required for households to survive. Moreover, children were needed for family labor force. As with um, many, um, with as many as one or two, one in two children dying before the age of five, so one in two children would die before the age of five, that meant a woman needed to have up to eight pregnancies to produce the optimum number of four children. So what, what Carol Myers and Tamar Skenazi and others argue is that this reading then is an explanation, an etiology, for the, for the rather hard life of the reality of ancient Israel, particularly for women. Women had to work hard in getting the food, making the clothing, caring for the kids, the animals, etc., and that they also had to have a lot of pregnancies just to produce enough children to have a large family, which is what that kind of life requires. Comments, questions? Well, yeah, I think that, well, that, that's sort of underlying this. But the right. Is not well, so let's now go to the second part, because let's go to what follows after that line. Okay, so we have, so, and, and, um, and again, let's compare the translations. So, so the first thing, and we'll, we'll go with the translation, you're gonna ha I, God will increase your toil in your pregnancies. And then we have the statement, in anguish shall you bear children. And we're going to stop there. <laughs> the, the rest is more complicated, but let's just focus on that. And let's compare the three translations. So the New American Bible is, in pain shall you bring forth your children. And, and in Hebrew, it's the same word, be'etzev, which we've already read in the comment, really doesn't refer to pain, but re has the sense of, sorrow or anguish. So, but in, in the translation and altar in the New American Bible, it seems to refer to the same thing that the, the prior translation implies, which is that giving birth is gonna be painful. But that's a different translation, that's a different interpretation than that we find in the translation in the Torah Women's Commentary, which is, in anguish shall you bear your children. Meaning that there, as, as the comment that was just made, there's a lot of anguish that goes along with raising children. So take a look. Um, at page 17, if you have that handout. And you can see, so I'm going to read it from the left-hand column, the second paragraph down. Genesis 3.16 neither imposes physical pain on the woman nor condones it. 
The passage describes the hardship that often accompanies birthing and raising children. Unlike the pronouncements to the serpent, which speak of perpetual enmity, nothing suggests that this etsev, which is translated here as anguish, is a continual condition. Thus, along with her joy in being a parent, which we see in, in chapter 4, verse 1, the first woman will herself experience and express sorrow and the need for comfort after her firstborn kills his brother. This is the Cain and Abel story. Um, so what this translation is arguing then is that the punishment is that the woman will experience sorrow or anguish in connection with child rearing, child rearing not and not specifically pain in labor. So we can see then that these, going back to the chart, that these seemingly subtle translation differences are fairly significant in how we understand the text, both in this story and in, in the earlier part of the chapter that we looked at. So whether or not you have that little prepositional phrase with her, or in this case, whether or not you ignore or you translate the conjunction and, or how you translate a certain word, pain or sorrow, can have a pretty significant impact here on how you understand this text, and this text particularly that has been um, really foundational for um, how many traditions following this understand the role of women in society, the, the, the position of women, the role of women, and you see that, that this text is then went, so you can see how the text looks different, differently when we read it in a translation that's closer to the Hebrew, and also um, with the aid of the, this commentary that is particularly trying to say, let's put aside the way that this story has been interpreted over time, but let's look closely at the Hebrew text, how words, how they're used, how they're used here, and how they're used elsewhere, and maybe that will give us a different understanding of the text, not only looking at the words, but also what do we know about life in ancient Israel, the reality that's behind this text. So, um, and then we don't even have time to get into the, um, the next part of, of the statement to the woman, uh, which is, the re and this gets back to your question about what's the relationship between the husband and the, and the wife. And you can see, at, so that second half of verse 16, all the translations differ. So I'm gonna leave this for you to do on your own. Compare all the translations of the second half of verse 16, and then you can read the commentary on that, um, on page 17. Um, how does, what's the translation of the word desire, and he shall rule over you. But before we conclude, um, I, I hope that this study of Genesis 3 has given you a new perspective on this familiar biblical story, showing you how, in Tikvah Farmer Kensky's words, we can open up deep levels of meaning when you closely read a text, looking at what's there and what's not there, paying attention to what characters say and what they do, and by comparing several different translations to appreciate the interpretive possibilities of this very rich and complicated text of the Hebrew Bible. Thank you.